That's another plane, right? Not exactly. Is that a... Quetzalcoatlus. Late Cretaceous should have stayed there. Okay. Okay. It's cool. We're good. It's gone. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond, the film podcast covering films of the 1990s as well as more recent films that are influenced or somehow connected to those films that I talk about here on this show. My name is Vince Leo. I am the host, and I'm also the host of Around the World in 80s Movies. So if you like what you hear here today, I do encourage you to check out my other show that covers films of the 1980s, of course. You can find the links at my website, quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the final at least for now, of the Jurassic series, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World. Well, it all culminates into, it actually came out, well, within the last year, actually, one of the more recent films I'll be covering here in the summer here of 2022. Jurassic World Dominion, of course, is a PG-13 rated film, as with all the other Jurassic films. Intense sequences of action, some violence, and language. The runtime is, well, if you watch the theatrical cut, it's two hours and 27 minutes. It's a bit longer for the uh, the extended version that you can get on Blu-ray. The cast brings back, of course, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, but also Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, and a few others I'll mention in the body of this review. Colin Trevorrow is the director and the screenplay credited to Trevorrow, as well as Emily Carmichael. Now, before the release of 2018's Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which I talked about on the previous episode, it was announced that Jurassic World's director and its writer, Colin Trevorrow, would return. He was going to direct the third entry after sitting out for the second. Of course, J.A. Bayona did direct Fallen Kingdom. Trevorrow had just spent time he was preparing to direct Star Wars Episode Nine, but he would end up getting replaced on that project by J.J. Abrams yet again. Trevorrow was also supposed to direct Episode Seven, but he was replaced by J.J. Abrams on that one. Now, although Trevorrow was disappointed to lose the Star Wars gig yet again, he felt that his time spent preparing for that film was invaluable in terms of learning how to direct a major franchise finale, like he was going to do here with Jurassic Park and World. In February of 2020, Trevorrow did announce the official title of Jurassic World was going to be Jurassic World Dominion, and that it would be the final entry in his Jurassic World trilogy. Future entries that might be done in this world would be done by others who would probably be able to play in the expanded sandbox that would be opened up through the Jurassic World trilogy as it exists, at least in the last half of Fallen Kingdom, and much more so in Dominion. Dominion was initially intended for a June 11th, 2021 release, and would reportedly end not only the Jurassic World series, but the Jurassic Park story arcs for those characters as well. Trevorrow's game plan for the Jurassic sequels was to substantially change the DNA of the entire franchise. No longer would each entry be about humans or dinosaurs trying to survive each other. 
but it would rather be about them trying to live together. He admitted that the Jurassic Park concept was only useful maybe for a single movie, but its immense financial success did assure that there would be sequels. So expanding the dinosaurs beyond the park or the island setting was really the only way for the franchise to eventually move forward beyond redundancy. Maybe it should be like the Marvel movies where its characters all live in a world full of superheroes. He wanted the franchise to have the ability to exist with different stories that take place within a world that happens to be filled with dinosaurs. Trevorrow wanted to treat the dinosaurs among us, among humans, from a place of reality instead of sensationalism. He set a rule for himself that the dinosaurs were not going to do anything that animals would not do in reality. They could be territorial, they could be protective of their young, they could also be weaponized or sold in markets or brought home as pets, as real animals are, but beyond that, they were not monsters or any kind of really super predators above and beyond that. Now, toward the end of producing Fallen Kingdom, Trevorrow did enlist screenwriter Emily Carmichael to come in to work with him on this finale. They could set up the third film's script based on his story ideas that he had previously worked out with Derek Connolly when they were setting up what they were going to do for Fallen Kingdom. Trevorrow had first noticed Carmichael as a writer after seeing her short film called The Hunter and the Swan discuss their meeting, which won back in 2012, the Grand Jury Prize at the Science Fiction Fantasy Short Film Festival in Seattle. He was impressed by Carmichael's ability to develop warmth, humanity into her characters, especially in a genre that so often lacks those things. In 2015, Trevorrow connected with Carmichael through a mutual friend, Anna Kerrigan, who was the creator of the web series, The Impossibilities. Trevorrow later invited Carmichael to the set of his film Book of Henry to discuss fleshing out characters for this England-based family action adventure story idea that he had called Powerhouse. That was going to be a potential project that he was doing for Amblin. She could write and direct it while he would co-produce with X-Men's Simon Kinberg, and it would potentially star John Boyega. Carmichael was given that clout not just because of Trevorrow, but Trevorrow had sent Steven Spielberg uh, Carmichael's spec script titled Eon, where two thieves, uh, an alien and a human, are hired to steal a package from a research facility that turns out to be a 10-year-old girl with supernatural powers. Spielberg read it within the course of a night. He liked it enough to give her the chance on Powerhouse. Two years later, after witnessing her work on Pacific Rim Uprising and a yet-to-be-produced remake script for uh, Disney's The Black Hole, Jurassic World producer Pat Crowley suggested to Trevorrow that maybe Carmichael could come in and help write the uh, Jurassic World 3 script. Trevorrow felt sure. Carmichael really was the person with the right stuff to help him with Dominion, and she was brought on board. Trevorrow met Carmichael several times, not only in Santa Monica, but also as he was working in France to go over what they wanted to do for this finale. And once they had an outline, they began alternately working on Carmichael's first script pass, though Trevorrow did reserve a couple of action sequences strictly for himself. Now, each of these writers wrote notes on how each scene could be improved. They would pass them back and forth until both were satisfied. Trevorrow did not want to include the legacy characters until the finale here in this film because he felt that audiences really should grow to care about Owen and Claire in their own two films. The legacy characters themselves only had prominent roles in two movies each, so having Owen and Claire 
be the predominant protagonists in two movies really balance the weight between the old characters and the new characters. At the end of Fallen Kingdom, we did find clone human Maisie Lockwood releasing some formerly captive dinosaurs into the wild, and that forced a world where humans and dinosaurs might coexist. Here we have four years later, dinosaurs have been spreading all around the world. They're not only all over the land, but also in the sea and in the air. And these dinosaurs change the balance of the new ecosystems that they encounter in very unexpected ways. New ideas, including the colliding of stories between the Jurassic World characters with the Jurassic Parks. That was all part of the uh, the game plan, the formula here. The Jurassic Park characters, they might never have wanted to set foot on the island of Isla Sorna or Isla Nublar. Though they couldn't on Nublar ever again. But, you know, they would have to act if the dinosaur situation did show up on their doorsteps, which was going to happen for Dominion, so they could be brought back into the series. Tavaro did not want Dominion to be a war film. He didn't want to see city streets littered with fighting between humans and dinosaurs. He felt that that ran too far afield from Michael Crichton's original intent for the Jurassic Park story. Dinosaurs should be here like any other animal in nature, like sharks or bears. They were dangerous, but they just wanted to exist in their habitat. They wanted to live undisturbed, and they would only venture out to danger to survive or to protect their own. For instance, tigers do exist in the world, but we as humans rarely see them unless we go to a zoo or someplace like that. So dinosaurs would not be obvious, even though they do exist in nature. They would be just like any other animals. Trevorrow here he decided to watch episodes of Planet Earth for a lot of the inspiration about their behavior and their habitats and how they would cohabitate on this planet. He wanted to show dinosaurs in places that we'd never seen in film before, not only in cities, but also in snow and also fighting in the air and against airplanes or helicopters and that sort of thing. Things we had not seen in the prior films very much. So Dominion is primarily set approximately four years after the events of Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. Dinosaurs now living in all corners of the earth, often interacting with humans, sometimes in not so friendly ways. Here we find a, a corporation named Biosyn Genetics. They're studying the dinosaurs within their preserves in Italy's Dolomites as a way to maintain human control over the dinosaur population as much as we could as well as to use the unique dinosaur physiology for help in pharmaceutical research for humans. That's the basic setup. Now, in September of 2019, it was announced officially that the original Jurassic Park thespians, Jeff Goldblum, Sam Neill, and Laura Dern, they were going to return to reprise their iconic roles as Ian Malcolm, Alan Grant, and Ellie Sattler, respectively. The first time all three were together since the original Jurassic Park film in 1993. Trevorrow vowed to give these characters proper reasons to be in the story rather than to just drum up fan service moments. Their characters should be needed for their expertise and their experience with dinosaurs. The Earth should depend on them taking action. Trevorrow wanted Ellie Sattler specifically to be the engine for Dominion because Ian Malcolm, he was the engine already for The Lost World. Alan Grant had his time to shine in Jurassic Park 3, and Ellie Sattler had never really had her chance to be kind of the main force, the main catalyst for a Jurassic film. The actors contributed ideas as to where their characters would be after all the time had passed. He, Trevorrow picked their brain to have some idea of where they thought that their characters would be 
living and what they would be doing now. Laura Dern happens to be an activist in real life, and she felt that her character, Ellie Sattler, would use her position as a scientist to try to make the world a better place proactively, very similar to her, and that would be in contrast to Alan Grant, who did his own thing in his own time. Now, it took some effort to convince Sam Neill, who did feel that things had moved on beyond his character's need to exist in this series any longer. Trevorrow did promise Neil that the legacy characters would absolutely be integral to the story. Neil felt that Alan Grant, he probably would have been ready to retire. He probably would not have wanted to get involved. Maybe, though, if Ellie Sattler were single again and she needed him, maybe he imagined that uh, he might go for it. He imagined Ellie as the one that got away. Ellie's marriage was written to be dissolved in this film, and her kids would be off to college, which happened to be, as we know from the the original film, Alan Grant's Achilles' heel. He didn't want children at that time, and so he wouldn't have to deal with (laughs) having children now that they're adults. When Ellie does visit Alan, she asserts that something is threatening everybody on the planet, and he's the only person that she fully trusts. So Alan has to make a decision. The world... Well, it probably won't survive much longer sitting on the sidelines anyway. He has to act not only for the Earth, but also for the woman that got away here, Ellie. The writers, though, did feel it was important to have a reason why these characters specifically would be the heroes. So they started talking to geneticists and futurists while they were in Tel Aviv to discuss what would happen in a global ecological disaster that's a result of tampering with genetic power that would be first noticed by these characters' occupations, a paleontologist or a botanist. In this way, Carmichael here wanted to explore more of Ellie Sattler's importance in this film by making her the person who notices first and also brings everybody together, becoming that driving engine that she wanted for the story. The knowledge of the eco-history of plants, that should prove to be invaluable in saving the planet. And it would be how the delicate balance of life could so easily get out of whack through too much genetic experimentation, producing unknown consequences to our food supply, including potential global disaster that would be worthy of a Crichton novel specifically. And the result was genetically modified locusts. Trevorrow set up two plot lines with the legacy characters as well as the newer characters. They would contrast each other because they would seem like they were in different genres. And those genres would converge for the climax. The legacy Jurassic Park characters, they would be in a Crichton-esque science-based thriller, while the Jurassic World characters would be in an action-adventure that would be reminiscent of like a Jason Bourne or James Bond adventure. Trevorrow knew this approach would be unconventional for a blockbuster, but he felt that it would be truer to the nature of how the franchise and its characters ran. Spielberg did interject a little bit here. He said that there should be much more connection than what they had in their original scripts in the story elements that involved the Locusts and Maisie and this other clone dinosaur called Beta, Clone of Blue, the Velociraptor. Those three things should be connected in a way that made sense for them to be critical for all the characters involved that would cause them to team up instead of just happen to meet randomly. All paths had to become one by the end of this film. The screenwriters did need help with some ideas, so they consulted with other screenwriters for assistance, including Michael Arndt, Christy Wilson-Cairns, and David Kep, on how to fine-tune the plot and their narrative. 
Ultimately, their new script involved activist Claire Deering. She's leading the Dinosaur Protection Group to break up illegal breeding operations, while Claire's partner, on again, off again, but definitely on here, Owen Grady, he is busy capturing and relocating stray dinosaurs before they're slaughtered by poachers. Claire and Owen live in a cabin in the Sierra Nevadas with 14-year-old experimental human clone Maisie Lockwood raised as their surrogate daughter in an effort to protect her from exploitation. The velociraptor raised by Owen named Blue lives in the nearby woods with her asexually created younger hatchling dubbed Beta by Maisie. Maisie is unhappy living in isolation for that long and occasionally strays beyond her parents' border, ultimately getting captured by mercenaries who also kidnap Beta because of their unique qualities. Meanwhile, genetically modified locusts are consuming and destroying farm crops in America's heartland, and they are spreading very fast and will soon become a global threat to our food supply. Paleobotanist Ellie Sattler, while doing research in the farms, discovers that crops from biosyn seeds specifically remain unaffected. So she begins to suspect that there must be some foul play involved for the corporation to try to monopolize the world's food market with the only kind of seeds that will grow. She consults her former paleontologist colleague, as well as her former romantic partner, Alan Grant, for help. They discover that the locusts have been genetically modified using Cretaceous period DNA. Their detective work finds them joining forces with Claire and Owen to infiltrate Biosyn, where Ian Malcolm is currently employed to expose the greedy corporation's plans to the world. Trevorrow, in addition to bringing back not only those legacy characters, but also the Jurassic World characters, now wanted to also set up new characters that audiences were going to admire in this film that could be potential stars of their own in future entries if they decided to make more Jurassic films. And those include Kayla Watts, who happens to be played by DeWanda Wise here, and Ramsey Cole, who happens to be Mamadou Ati's character. Also, Soyona Santos, played by Deacon Lockman, could potentially have a uh, reappearance in future entries as well. Trevorrow also suggested that characters from the animated Camp Cretaceous show on Netflix could also make big screen appearances in future entries if audiences were sufficiently interested in that happening. Kayla Watts, the character played by DeWanda Wise, she's a cargo pilot transporting black market dinosaurs for profit. Trevorrow wrote Kayla specifically to continue the legacy of having a strong female role model that could continue beyond the two trilogies. He didn't write her specifically to be played by a black actress. She wasn't necessarily written as a black woman. In fact, she wasn't. But he became enamored of DeWanda Wise's acting when he was watching the Netflix series called She's Gotta Have It and thought that she could probably potentially play that role. Wise, when she was approached for this, did insist that if she accepted, she could change the character to try to fit the image that she had in mind, including having a backstory for her that we would come to find out in maybe future entries uh, and hints uh, of her family history as well as her bisexuality. Campbell Scott now happens to be playing Lewis Dodgson, if that name sounds familiar. He was a small character in the original Jurassic Park film, played by Cameron Thor in that one. 
He was an errand runner in uh, Jurassic Park who hired computer programmer Dennis Nedry to smuggle out dinosaur embryos in Jurassic Park in a, in a cryo can, in a shaving cream cryo can. Dodgson now has worked his way up to becoming the CEO of Biosyn. B.D. Wong also happens to return. He also appeared in the original Jurassic Park as well as the previous two Jurassic World films. He is playing geneticist Dr. Henry Wu. Thereafter, Maisie, they consider her the most important intellectual property in the world due to knowing more back history about her mother, which we come to learn in this film. I won't spoil it here. Biosyn, if you've read the Michael Crichton novels, you know that they are prominently in Michael Crichton's original Jurassic Park novel as a rival to InGen, and the importance of Biosyn was greatly expanded in Crichton's The Lost World novel, the sequel to Jurassic Park, but were basically mostly ignored in the film versions of those books. As far as why Cameron Thor did not reprise his role in favor of Campbell Scott for this film, it all came from his conviction for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl in 2009, basically putting a damper on his background, and they definitely weren't going to touch him then. Omar C., he also returns to his role as Owen's colleague and friend Barry, as we saw him in the original Jurassic World. Jake Johnson, he was going to return here. He said his character, Lowry Crothers, was in the script. He was game to do it, but then the pandemic happened. COVID-19 spread all around the world, and due to the quarantines, due to all the restrictions, there were multiple schedule changes that did affect his availability due to his commitment to doing the second season of the ABC TV show called Stumptown. So all in all, too many hurdles to try to jump through and Trevorrow reluctantly had to pull the plug on Lowry's return here. Daniela Pineda and Justice Smith, who were characters in uh, Fallen Kingdom, they do return, although Pineda was going to have a much more prominent role. In fact, she got cut out of uh, a lot of the movie because she got stuck in New Zealand during the COVID lockdown. So they ended up hiring another actor to fulfill a different role that would basically act the same as Pineda's character, uh, Verada Setu. New dinosaurs, as you would expect, do abound in this film. But interestingly, none are hybrids. This is definitely taking a different tack to the prior two entries. Trevorrow felt that they had already exploited the hybrid idea enough in the series. The novelty had definitely worn off. And it also made narrative sense. A corporation like Biosyn would want to clone dinosaurs to be as genetically accurate as possible because they want to cure diseases in humans based on millions of years of immune system advancements that had occurred in dinosaurs, so all these hybrids were of no use to doing that research. The closest dinosaur to being a big bad here is the Giganotosaurus, a very large dinosaur. The mantle here passed by showing it kill the T-Rex in the prologue. But still, there was a shift more toward accuracy to the genetics of dinosaurs as they existed, which is why in this film they are finally introducing dinosaurs with feathers, something that Trevorrow adamantly was opposed to when he was first doing Jurassic World. Now we have dinosaurs with feathers all over their body. Trevorrow also wanted more animatronic dinosaurs than ever before in any of the films. Here, crafted by John Nolan and his team, the actors, they tend to enjoy acting much more against lifelike dinosaurs than some sort of tennis ball there to show the eyeline of an invisible entity that would be put in later by CG. Animatronic dinos they also seem so lifelike in their movement that the actors often forget about the many puppeteers needed to operate the sophisticated mechanisms. 
Trevorrow knew well enough that the sense of awe no longer can be recreated anyway from the first film, but he felt that he could make up for it with very realistic-looking, breathtaking set pieces. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, the COVID pandemic also affected this production. Ten days into the production, they were left scrambling as to how to proceed forward. They really were the guinea pigs for how Hollywood would deal with the pandemic. They had just completed the Vancouver, British Columbia portion. They were now at Pinewood Studios in London. Other exteriors were set to be done in Malta and Switzerland. The production completely halted in March of 2020. It did not resume until months later in July. $9 million was spent to try to safeguard the production, including ordering 18,000 tests, 150 hand sanitizer stations, an antiviral mist to try to keep everything sanitized. They drafted their own 100-plus page safety precaution playbook to try to deal with the strict COVID protocols. The cast and crew themselves were isolated from the outside world. They would eat together vacuum-sealed meals. They lived together while remaining socially distanced as much as they could within the Langley, this luxury hotel rented out for 20 weeks by the studio completely for them to live in away from everybody else. A $5 million medical center was constructed inside Pinewood Studios, complete with a full-time general practitioner and a staff of nurses and medics. The set was essentially close to everybody except for Trevorrow, the principal cast, as well as some camera operators. This would provide a safe bubble of COVID-free people and the areas that they considered safe were called the green zone. The actress said that there was kind of a silver lining to this. It actually helped the production to have a lot of downtime together. They could rehearse. They could come up with even better ideas for what their characters would be doing. Dewanda Wise frequently changed the dialogue to what she felt would better suit to her character, the way she envisioned. So she was able to kind of dig deeper into her character and how she should portray her. Neil and Goldblum, they ended up entertaining the others. They sang a lot of duets. Neil brought his ukulele. Because of the impending birth of Chris Pratt's child, the British government, at the behest of Universal and the British Film Institute, did declare entertainment workers as essential so that he could be exempt from work shutdowns and he could fly in and out of the country whenever needed. That also helped other members of the crew later. Meanwhile, the release date did get postponed, as you would expect, to the following year, almost to the day of June 10th, 2022, they had advertising campaigns to deal with. They had theme park promotions, theater safety concerns as well that they had to work out. So it was better to just punt and release it the following year. There was a special eight-minute preview that was shown in theaters that would depict the dinosaurs as they existed in prehistoric times roaming the Earth. This was meant to be in the film, but it was a sacrifice to try to winnow down the runtime. This also showed the mythic mosquito that led to the DNA being preserved for the dinosaur resurrection in modern times. There's also a T-Rex component of the Trevorrow-directed trailer called Battle at Big Rock, also intended to be in the film, featuring a family on a camping trip. Try to set the tone for the movie to come, kind of using those excised scenes as teasers. But Trevorrow was also surprised at some of the marketing for the film, because it seemed like Universal was marketing Dominion as the last Jurassic film altogether, instead of just the end of this phase. But Universal said that marketing said that people felt that it gave much more of a sense of weight and urgency to go see the film if they felt that it actually was the last film in the series rather than the end of the beginning. So they felt that audiences would be much more apt to buy a ticket before whatever happens got spoiled on social media or wherever. 
So the $200 million production budget, which is very substantial, combined with the marketing costs, were sky high. There was going to be a sizable hurdle still for profitability, even though this is one of the most lucrative franchises out there. Critics also did not help matters, their outlook, because they gave Dominion generally lackluster reviews. I think it's less than 30% positive on Rotten Tomatoes currently. Critics mostly were complaining that there was much more emphasis on locusts here than on dinosaurs, and they were very confused as to the reasons why. They also felt that the interesting aspects of Jurassic Park have already been mined, and whatever new direction the series seems to be taking just did, does not seem to be as interesting. So moviegoers did still come out to see this film. Even though many were still reticent to film movie theaters during the COVID pandemic, Dominion still scored very big at the box office and it crossed the billion dollar mark during its run. As I mentioned, the extended cut, which now exists on Blu-ray, uh, does add 14 minutes to the theatrical release. And it looks at dinosaurs from the Cretaceous area, that T-Rex attack on the drive-in that were, that were used in the marketing. So you might have already seen a lot of the, uh, the, the stuff that's in there if you follow the marketing of this film. Trevorrow does see the extended cut here as... He considers it to be the real movie, the one that he intended to release in the theaters. The theatrical release is the movie, but it has pieces removed. So cutting the 14 minutes was the hardest thing that Trevorrow felt he ever had to do as a director, but he did understand that there were financial considerations to keeping the runtime under two and a half hours because that would increase showtimes per theater by one or maybe even two daily showings. So he had to kill a few darlings there. So that's kind of the history as, as much as I could ascertain in the short amount of time that we have to spend with it for the making of Jurassic World Dominion. As far as what I think about Jurassic World Dominion, well, I will say this. Charitably, I do think that it's better than a lot of the critics are giving it credit for. I, do th I don't think it's the worst of the Jurassic films. In my opinion, it's probably my favorite of the Jurassic sequels. Personally, I do think it's better than The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3 and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. But it's not quite up to Jurassic Park or Jurassic World themselves. And the reasons why, as I mentioned in my previous episode, there's just something about the Jurassic Park premise that was regurgitated also in Jurassic World that is much more compelling because we're dealing with a theme park and it's much more fun, I think. And also, those movies seem to be commenting a lot about themselves and the movie-making process itself. So there was a lot of metatextual things going on there. This film seems to have some metatextual things to say about environmentalism and things like that. And while I don't necessarily disagree with that point of view, it's not necessarily a very compelling or even an entertaining watch in and of itself. So if you really like the characters, I would say you would continue to watch this and you would, you might enjoy character moments in this film. You might even enjoy some of the prolonged action sequences, etc. I do think that this notion that Trevorrow had for his commitment to realism is all, it all got blown away. This film is way over the top in terms of its action, much more so than any of the previous films, which were comparatively quaint and small scale now and compared to what you see here. I mean, it's, it's very much becoming like the Fast and Furious series where they seem to be getting more and more ludicrous as to how they're going to develop their big stunt and action set pieces. Ultimately, it's just a, a popcorn movie. Not enough for me to give a wholehearted recommendation to. 
I think if you've invested this much time, you're going to give it a watch. You may enjoy aspects of it, but I don't think that I am really amped after watching this film to see more of this series. And that is kind of the litmus test as to how I feel about the uh, Jurassic sequels. So two and a half stars is the best I can give Jurassic World Dominion. I did watch on Blu-ray the uh, extended cut, thinking that maybe that would be better. And while I find the scenes that were, I guess, put back into this movie to be worthwhile, I think, I don't think it really made the film a better experience overall for me. It still has the same strengths and weaknesses throughout. And unfortunately, I really don't like a lot of the new characters. I know they're trying to build out the franchise a little bit more with these new characters. All of these characters seem to be somewhat idealized, not really fleshed out. Everybody seems to be much more of a concept than a character. And when you're doing things on that level, it's all very superficial and it doesn't really engage you emotionally or intellectually. So two and a half stars is the best I can give Jurassic World Dominion, despite some things to tout that I do think will still make it worthwhile for those people who've invested this much time into the series. If you have your own thoughts on Jurassic World Dominion that you want to impart to me, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are all there. I do encourage you to reach out by email if you want to really get in touch with me and have me respond. And let me know what you think of the show or any ideas you might have on improvements. Anyway, as far as what I'm going to be doing on the next episode, well, let's go back, all the way back to the 1990s again. We always have to reset whenever we venture out to another film that kind of was greenlit because of the success of the Jurassic Park, at least the original Jurassic Park film, and this went into development not too long afterward. And it's a Roland Emmerich film called Godzilla with Matthew Broderick from 1998. It's a film I reviewed on my website at the time because I actually have been reviewing films since 1996. So I did cover Godzilla and I definitely remember not being very enamored of that film back then. But will it stand up today? Is it something I can turn my opinion around on? Well, that awaits to be seen as I talk about Godzilla on the next episode. Until then, thank you so much, everyone, for listening and joining me as we go to the 90s and beyond. 